the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following is a conversation between Leon Botstein, president of Bard College, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving, on AM 970, The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. How many people do you know who've held the same job since Gerald Ford was president of the United States? Not many, I bet. Well, you're about to meet one. He is Leon Botstein, the president of Bard College, who also serves as the musical, musical director and principal conductor of the American Symphony Orchestra and conductor laureate of the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra, among other posts. Good evening, Leon, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Well, thanks for having me, Denver. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, most listeners probably have heard of Bard College, but might not know that much about it. What makes it such a distinctive institution of higher learning? Bard is a um, uh, a very high quality, unusual liberal arts college. It's two hours north of New York. It has about uh, nineteen hundred undergraduates. It has a smattering of graduate programs, um, mostly in the arts, but one in environmental science. And it has a graduate center in the decorative arts and art history with a PhD program in New York and a world-famous curatorial program training curators. But it's primarily an undergraduate college. It's known um, for its distinction uh, in literature and the arts, for example. It has, I think, 11 MacArthur prize winners on its faculty. Wow. It is also a very um, prominent place um, in science, in environmental science, and in the social sciences. Um, it is um, it has a very distinct curriculum, so it's just not like any other liberal arts college. Uh, it has an um, uh, intensive language and thinking program for first-year students um, to perfect their command of language and close reading, uh, a citizen science program, uh, a kind of core curriculum, then a lot of student-centered um, opportunities where people major in what they want. We're not organized by department, mm. so we don't look like a university. In four divisions, the arts, the natural sciences, um, the social sciences, and uh, literature and language. And we have a big international network, so we have uh, connections to institutions all over the world, from Kyrgyzstan to Vietnam to uh, Berlin. We have a campus in Berlin. And uh, uh, it is a... Um, it's a place that is also deeply engaged in the connection of education and social justice. So we have a network of early colleges in mm -hmm. the public sector in six cities and the leading prison education program in the country. So it's a, um, it's a place with very distinguished faculty, uh, yeah. Daniel Mendelssohn, uh, Joan Tower, the composer. Uh, it, um, Tan Dunn is the dean of our Conservatory of Music. Uh, we have the leading um, expert on tick-borne diseases, Felicia Kiesing, on our faculty. So it is a, a very unusual um, but um, a very rigorous and inspiring place to be a student. It certainly is interesting. Well, Leon, you know in the U.S. the humanities and social sciences are viewed by many as eh, kind of useless. You would not be included in that many. Um, and you really believe in the value of a liberal arts education. What's the case for it? 
First, the case has to be made by doing it. Many places say they're liberal arts education, but they really are not. Mm -hmm. They're just simply offering students courses in academic departments that are not connected uh, to what the liberal arts really should be about. Liberal arts is really about connecting the intellectual tradition to the conduct of life. How am I going to live my life? What are the values of my life? Mm -hmm. Uh, How do I figure that out? Um, What do I want to do with my life, both professionally and as a citizen? What am I going to do in my community. How am I going to relate to the community? Am I going to join the church, the same church as my parents? Am I going to uh, um, be active in cleaning up the earth uh, in relation to climate change? Or am I going to be more concerned with um, uh, providing social justice or protecting the values of my community in some way? Who knows what I'm going to do? But So the liberal arts are a way of allowing people to expand how they think, Uh, how to examine what they might believe in. Because a lot of things that we're asked to decide on as citizens are things maybe we haven't thought about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So really, this is it impacts the real decisions you make in your life. Right. Mm -hmm. So the curriculum has to be organized in a way that connects the intellectual tradition uh, to the content of life. Why study philosophy? Why study political theory? Why study um, the uh, basis of our democracy in terms of the theory of of what a citizen and in relation to political power is. Um, uh, Why should we worry about um, understanding the natural world? Yeah, yeah. In other words, so take the vaccination issue. Uh, How do we determine, (laughs) excuse me, how do we determine what the right public policy is with regard to vaccination? Um, What is the right public policy in terms of um, how we regulate the um, quality of our food. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are things about the relationship of, of the government to our conduct of life where we as citizens need to have knowledge. Knowledge in the 21st century is, uh, is power. Yeah, and if I can reduce this to economics, actually liberal arts majors have more earning power and less unemployment than other majors. Wouldn't that be the case? Uh, absolutely. So the, uh, the popular journalistic account is wrong, <laughs> that if you get a degree in art history or in philosophy or something like that, Dude. you're useless. It's <laughs> the exact opposite. In the 21st century, employment is an intersection between expertise and improvisation. Huh. Can you actually take, let's say, the state of engineering or the state of science or the state of economic thinking and then adapt to changes. Some of them are expected. Some of them are not expected in the world. And can you improvise? Can you make what you do competitive as opposed to what the next person does? Is your working as a professional imitative or is it innovative? So entrepreneurship and innovation is born in a capacity to think. And that capacity to think, critically, is developed by the liberal arts, which is why, curiously, places that are not American want liberal arts. Hmm. Europe is interested in introducing liberal arts in the undergraduate curriculum. Russia is interested in introducing liberal arts. The Chinese are interested in introducing liberal arts. Bizarrely, here at home, we um, dismiss it um, because we actually don't understand. (laughs) And one of the reasons we dismiss it is because I have to say not many institutions take the task seriously. The American University is dominated by the graduate programs Mm -hmm. and by postdocs and by the professionalization of fields. So the undergraduate, teaching undergraduate is the low priority and it should be the exact reverse. Mm -hmm. And your signature program in this, I think, might be that first year seminar? 
Yes, uh, we have a, a language and thinking and first year seminar. So this is a required course of all first year students, and it's really an active course in close reading and arguing and in writing, learning how to formulate an argument, how to listen to another person's argument and understand it, uh, to understand the points of disagreement, uh, and to actually um, use language as the as the instrument of thought. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you something which you may have an opinion on, and that has to do with Yale and their art history course. And as you probably saw, they are stopping that because students believed it was just so overwhelmingly white, straight, European, and male in terms of the cadre of artists. Do you have any opinion on that? I would, I would, um, I would refer the critics who use that argument uh, to um, to look at uh, W. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. Uh, and for the Latinx population, Jose Vasconcelos, uh, the first minister of culture uh, after the Mexican Revolution uh, in 1910. So the real issue is, is the traditions, are the traditions of Homer, uh, of Western music, Western art, uh, simply um, images and artifacts of white European men, for example, mm -hmm. primarily, or are they, for whatever reason, the same way that um, the discoveries of science are, uh, something that the entire world can appropriate for themselves and make their own? Mm -hmm. Is the ethnicity and gender of the creator a determinative factor on the value and utility? There's no doubt that if you do an art history or music history survey today, um, because of the nature of the world, uh, uh, the Western uh, part of it uh, wouldn't be quite so dominant uh, as it would have been 30 years ago. However, take music, which is my field. Um, in China, in Venezuela, in Korea, um, uh, all over the world, Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart are not viewed as someone else's. It's viewed as theirs. Mm -hmm. You're not going to tell Yo-Yo mm -hmm. Ma that Bach isn't his. Yeah. And it's, in fact, a Lutheran white male, uh, that, it seems to me, it is completely short-sighted and cuts off um, uh, all uh, people from the access to educational equality. Uh, in that sense, it's odd to say this, the Soviets, the old communists had it right. They wanted to democratize the access to all culture, science, Literature. That's why books were so cheap. That's why uh, Jose Vasconcelos said to the f one of the first presidents of Mexico, Obregón, when he asked him, "So, what do you want in every in every village where there should now be a school?" And he said, "I want every Mexican to be able to read the Iliad and the Odyssey." <laughs> and this was a a theorist of the superiority of the mestizo race. So it was not a person who wanted to pass as a white person, Jose Vasconcelos was not, in mm -hmm. that sense, not a patriot of the distinctiveness of Mexican identity. So it, this, is, this is a, um, a – the right response is to rethink uh, how one actually um, makes um, the achievements of any culture – translate over the cultural barrier. We have an obligation to um, absorb. We have, for example, at Bard, an institute which teaches Chinese music to Americans mm -hmm. and Westerners. So it's not only Western music being taught to Chinese, but that we have a 
Chinese U.S. Music Institute, which actually allows American musicians to learn Chinese instruments and Chinese musical traditions. So it needs to go both ways, but it is terribly simplistic to simply say um, uh, that um, uh, this is simply uh, the product of a certain kind of type. I mean, who knows? Uh, there are people who argue that um, Homer and uh, the Greeks were indebted to African and uh, uh, traditions, and Aristotle mm. certainly was transmitted to the West through Arabic scholars. Uh, this reductive ethnicity, nationality, and gender stereotype um, is really, ironically, a barrier to um, democratizing the access to real learning. Yeah, I think you're right. And it also seems pretty lazy. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, 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 uh, it's not rigorous at all. You know, speaking about not rigorous at all, you have always cited that one of the weak spots in the American educational system is high school. The way we teach our adolescents, let's say between the ages of 13 and 17 years of age. Absolutely. So the And the worst um, uh, part of it is that the people that suffer most are the uh, students in the inner city that mm -hmm. have terrible high schools. And so the dropout rate from high school and the failure to access higher education is a result of the failure of the American high school. Mm. American high school simply does not recognize that you have to treat the adolescent differently. You have to respond to the need to know. You have to inspire them. You have to put the best teaching into them. You have to have people in front of them uh, because they're, they're, they're emerging adults uh, who actually are experts in their field. They're not just teachers. Uh, the way in the old system of apprenticeship, you would send a 12 or 13-year-old to a master builder right. um, or um, uh, a real artisan. So uh, you need to expose them to very high-quality adult work early on. And so we invented um, uh, the idea of an early college where kids enter after the eighth grade. They mm -hmm. do 9, 10, 11, 12. And the end of the 12th grade in a public school, they get a high school diploma plus a two-year liberal arts degree from us. Mm -hmm. They complete two years of college. So they accelerate over those four years. And it's public and free. And uh, we have now seven of them Great. in six cities, mm -hmm. two in New York, uh, one in Washington, Cleveland, Baltimore, Newark, New Orleans, and Cleveland. And um, they're tremendously successful. Objectively, in New York State, we lead all high school programs in the encouragement and the success rate of uh, minority, um, minorities finishing four-year college degrees. Mm. So it is, it's about taking the... Um, students seriously, being able to compensate for deficits in middle school, so it's not discriminatory. We yeah. don't admit kids by tests, uh, but by motivation. And uh, we um, have a terrific success. And uh, uh, it's, um, I think, one of the major instruments of reform if we want to fix our secondary system, because the secondary system is truly broken. We lose the best years of learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about tests a little bit because you have always questioned the value and the efficacy of the college admissions system long before it was fashionable and way before Felicity Huffman and Lori Loughlin. Um, what are some of these most egregious shortcomings that you see well, with the way we admit kids into college? The testing system is a completely corrupt uh, operation. <laughs> Who would ever give a test from which you don't learn? No sports coach would put a kid out on a field and the kid makes an error, 
and send them a note six months later giving them their cumulative errors. The kid learns nothing from the experience. Mm -hmm. The moment a kid is on the field and something happens with the ball that is wrong, the coach intervenes right away because you know very well, whether it's in music or in sports, the time to learn is when you make a mistake. Mm If you make a left turn when you're learning to drive a car when you should make a right turn, the person doesn't tell you four months later. They say, listen, you have to make a signal right. You could have got us killed. That's exactly right. So um, you need tests, which we can do now, that respond to wrong answers when they are made and teach the person who made the wrong answer why they got it wrong. Mm-hmm. So you need to use modern technology to improve the tests. The tests now are outdated pseudo-social science from the 1940s that make a profit for the college board and other instrumentalities like that and make school systems easy to run because you have standardized tests which are dumb and textbooks which teach those tests. Nobody learns anything, and it's a complete fraud. And why Americans are in love with this because it's a way to sort of not have to worry about education. It is a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And they have to be, among other things, discriminatory. So I'm in favor. Testing is very important because testing is a way to measure where somebody's learning. But testing is an instrument of learning. It's not a punitive object here. And uh, if you have a test, it should be one from which someone learns. And so we need interactive computer-based tests that are timed. Mm -hmm. So it's like a chess game. You get a wrong answer, your clock stops. And then you engage and figure out what you got wrong. So the kid understands why, in fact, when two and two didn't is not five. Mm-hmm. And they have they learn something from having made the mistake. And then they go, go on to the next question. Yeah, they get mastery as they go along. Exactly right. So it is completely corrupt, and there is very little to be said in defense of it. You know, another exceptional undertaking to the college, now this one started back in 1999, is the Bard Prison Initiative. And I see that's now the subject of a PBS series that was produced by Ken Burns, which was called College Behind Bars. Tell us about that program. Well, this is the work of a very aggressive and dynamic undergraduate who came to us, Max Kenner, who came mm-hmm. to me uh, when he was a sophomore. And yeah. he had this idea. He was volunteering in some kind of prison support program we had at the college. And um, he had this brilliant insight that um, all these programs of you know colleges trying to help out after – prison education was removed in the 90s from prisons, um, was really uh, not helpful. That what we needed was to provide prisoners um, the opportunity uh, to get the same quality higher education that we gave to our regular undergraduates. It meant giving them degrees and Mm -hmm. credits and getting real classes with real teachers in there. In the liberal arts, not in uh, some kind of um, trade. And clearly that wouldn't be for all prisoners, but there was a section of the population in prison for whom it was appropriate. And um, he challenged us to join him in trying to make this happen, which we did. And he miraculously uh, persuaded the uh, Department of Corrections here in New York State uh, to experiment with it. 
And he got the beginnings of philanthropy. He paid for it. We came up with the uh, accreditation and mm -hmm. the approvals to give credits and degrees. And it's been a fantastic success. We have over 300 prisoners earning yeah. AA and BA degrees in five state prisons. Yeah. And, and what they're learning in these state prisons is exactly the same that they're learning at Bard. These are not watered down. No, in not watered down at all. Not watered down. Yeah. And the recidivism rate is is minuscule, so mm -hmm. it's a huge success. And Max has spawned a national network of programs of of um, higher education in the schools, and it has begun to change public policy and public perception, public perception about how what we do with incarceration. Mm -hmm. The truth is that. Um, um, if you are believe really in the possibilities of rehabilitation and redemption, um, you have to do something in prison other than warehousing people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And these students in prison, I mean, they've beaten the Harvard debate team oh, and yes. other schools <laughs> as well. I mean, they are, they're sensational. There's nothing like depriving someone of freedom mm. to inspire the recognition that the most important freedom you control is the freedom of your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And so we identify freedom with being able to go across the street, sure. pick up the phone, go where we want, buy what we want. It's a consumer-driven idea of freedom. The real essence of freedom, and that's why the liberal arts are important, uh, is freedom of thought, which so few of us exercise. Yeah, yeah, freedom to imagine, and that's what they do. You know, you've been at this business for some 50 years. Um, you were the president of Franconia College uh, up in New Hampshire before Bard. Right. Uh, Leon, are you struck more by how much things have changed or how much things have stayed the same? Uh, so, uh, look, I was in my early 20s when I uh, uh, got started, so people shouldn't think that uh, I'm on artificial life support <laughs> and uh, a kind of zombie who is really uh, uh, much older than is plausible. Um, so... Uh, over the 50 years I've been, I've been in the world of, of, of higher education, I would say that um, some things are far different than I would have imagined. Uh, I would never have imagined our democracy in such a perilous state. Mm -hmm. I would never have believed that we're going to live in a time where people will not trust the distinction between truth and falsehood. That um, the fake news, the alternative reality, the manipulation of video images, the distortion of fact is so ubiquitous that the average person is at sea about believing anybody, that the, that the success of conspiracy theories, of alternative reality, alternative realities, so the and the loss of interest in politics, the low participation rates, the sort of fact that the country has been seduced by these smartphones, by Facebook, by being online, people walk around in the street without looking up, without talking to their neighbors, that the community politics is in real time and mm -hmm. real space. And um and that's true of love as well, and it's true of teaching as well. And uh Yeah, I saw the, in London the other day they had to put pads around the posts, the telephone posts and things of that, because people were walking into them with their phone. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, it is. we have become, the problem is not 1984 and Big Brother and government. It's 1984 and our own voluntary subjugation to the being mesmerized 
by nothing, uh, by a kind <laughs> of a narcissistic uh, – uh, we we don't need to communicate every five minutes with whomever it is, yeah. whether it's our beloved or our children or our parents. Sure. And um, so that's number one, the erosion of democracy and the erosion of faith in the possibilities and the absence of affection for real freedom. That's, that I would have never predicted. And the other thing I would never have predicted is the insensitivity to the deterioration of the environment mm-hmm. and the uh, absolute willingness to ignore uh, the um, impact on the diversity of species uh, on the quality of water and food, uh, on the um, on the on the future of the planet and of our own possibilities. So those are the two dramatic changes, as far as I'm concerned, um, that I would not have um, been able to predict. Uh, yeah, and I think with democracy, um, I believe a lot of people at the outset thought that the virtual public space. Uh, Facebook and Instagram and the rest of it was actually going to be an aggregator of opinions, but it has really just turned into the opposite. It also believed that friendship, I mean, Facebook is a puerile adolescence notion of what human relations are about. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Those are not friends. (laughs) It it has distorted the meaning of friendship. And, And so it it is a, a, a shock, I think, that that uh, this has been as successful as it has. And it's also made us a lot meaner because I may have my opinion of you, but I would be hesitant to say it to your face. But I would not be hesitant totally. to type it into my phone. Totally. And, uh, so it's sort of cowardly. <laughs> it, it, is, it, is, it is the refuge of cowards. And it is an equalizer, which means someone who's telling the truth. Uh, is indistinguishable someone who's lying. So there's no filter. And um, the democratization has actually created also an imaginary crowd phenomenon. So if you are actually, uh, it's scary, um, if you've been ever subject to real email campaigns or internet, it is truly frightening mm. the amount of vitriol and the volume of traffic. So what that inspires on people is censorship, self-censorship. It's not that some censor from a government or from a company is going to stop you, but you lose the courage to speak out. Yeah. The cost— Because we've lost our privacy. And the cost of speaking out, the amount of hammering and vitriol and anger uh, that is easy to produce. So it has unleashed uh, uh, what probably was always there in human nature, which is envy, anger, Mm -hmm. frustration, um, and uh, a willingness to, um, to hold on to beliefs when they are no longer right. Yeah. Uh, the idea that someone, um, you know, we used to uh, uh, think that pasteurization, which, you know, uh, uh, is still a positive, right, uh, that um, uh, certain interventions in, 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 in the world uh, advance health, that the prejudice against um, uh, changing one's mind or altering one's prejudice, uh, especially about people who are not familiar to you, no stereotypes of mm-hmm. the others, that, uh, especially in a world where there's a lot of migration and a great deal of diversity. It's a very uh, discouraging moment. Yeah, And I, if I can, I'd like to blame the media for a little bit of this because if you're a politician, 
and you change your mind on something, you get killed. You know, you absolutely get killed in the media. I mean, I was thinking uh, a little bit when Mitt Romney um, cast his vote the other day uh, about his father, George Romney, who said that he had been brainwashed on Vietnam. And that was pretty much the end of his presidential campaign in 1968. So I think sometimes people hold on to these positions because nobody will say, hey, they got some new information. They've recalibrated and they've come out the other end. That's almost a, a death sentence for a politician. Yes, I would, I would always – I used to say that uh, I would always vote for someone who in a public debate listened to someone else's argument and said, you know, I never thought of that. And yeah. Actually, you might be right. Uh, so uh, 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 someone who is a rational uh, thinker and is not convinced that he or she has the truth uh, is, is someone I, I would trust. Um, I think that um, it's not only changing one's mind. It's also being able to speak to the American people and to various constituencies in a believable way. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if one has to say that uh, the reason Trump is so successful is that he doesn't sound like a politician, and uh, even though one uh, one is, is, is troubled by what comes out of his mouth, it's clearly he's talking. Mm -hmm. And the amount of scripting and absence of spontaneity oh, and— Focus uh, group everything. And a believable belief system. That's why Bernie Sanders is popular to some because he actually sounds like and acts as if he means what he says. Been saying it for forty years. That's exactly <laughs> right. And so um, there is, uh, and we've made it impossible for people of quality to enter public service. So the amount of money that's required to mm -hmm. run, uh, the time that's involved, which is excessive, but the money particularly, and uh, that uh, we have. Um, obliterated the difference between private and public life. Yeah. So uh, who would tolerate the exposure of their family themselves to the kind of scrutiny and vitriol and viciousness that being in public life uh, invites? Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, these are the good old days. Now it's really gotten to anything you've ever done. You know, a picture from when you were 16 no. years old or, or any little indiscretion that, well, your, your students would have it barred at that age can come back and haunt you 40 years yeah. later. My, my mother, who lived with us for 16 years and died at the age of 98, was a physician and a very wise and smart woman. And she, when Clinton got into trouble mm -hmm. in the White House uh, for um, uh, a relationship with an intern, uh, she said, you know, she would only trust someone as a politician who had skeletons in her or his closet <laughs> because they understood that they were imperfect. Yeah. And that humility uh, is a um, quality for leadership. She was a wise woman. You know, in addition to everything else you're doing, you have, were recently named as the first chancellor of the Open Society University Network. Now, this was created by George Soros, made a lot of news recently. He's made a billion-dollar commitment. Tell us about it and the impact that you hope it's going to have. The... Um, the decision by the Open Society Foundation and Mr. Soros to do this um, is a result of many years of, of work. It doesn't come out of the blue. Mm -hmm. So BARD has a very extensive network of um, dual degrees and shared platforms for students and faculty. So we have it with the American University in Central Asia, 
uh, Fulbright University in Vietnam, mm. um, Al-Quds University on the West Bank. Um, we have a partnership with the University of St. Petersburg in Russia. And so uh, a platform where students uh, have mobility, they're joined classes, they're, some faculty can travel, and there is, a, if you will, a, um, a common market of degrees and credits. And this offers higher education uh, of a certain quality uh, to areas and people that normally would be banned or did, do not have access. So uh, we are working with a group in Burma, in Myanmar, to create an, uh, a liberal arts uh, university there, and um, where access to higher education uh, of a high quality um, would be both local and international. So it's not it's not a franchise. Yeah, we're you're not, not opening a branch. We're not opening a branch. An American branch. It's not all. We're collaborating. Yeah. We're collaborating. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I think Mr. Soros came to the belief that education is the best investment on the improvement of education, especially in places where there is a need. Um, uh, and so uh, he, uh, because we have pioneered together with a Central European University, mm-hmm. which he founded. Right. Uh, so these two institutions uh, will work together to create a kind of international and expanding platform of access to high-quality uh, higher education. That's basically the idea. Let me ask you a question about this. You know, Mr. Soros has a very clear political point of view, so I think many people will say, hey, is this going to be a vehicle for promoting that point of view, that set of beliefs, or is it really intended to be a platform where all ideas will be equally welcomed? I think the latter. Uh, Mr. Soros is actually not as um, predictable in his political views as the press has made out. Mm -hmm. Remember, he was instrumental in the fall of communism. So now to associate him with the left is bizarre because he was one of the uh, innovative titans of Wall Street and a defender of private property and profit, and uh, he belongs on the same category as Warren Buffett. Yeah. Uh, so it is, it's simply um, a simplification. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, he opposed George Bush, and yes, uh, he opposes Trump, and but he's not a— uh, a democratic donor. Uh, he is um, he's skeptical. He's a very skeptical man. Uh, second is that um, he put his money into a foundation. This mm-hmm. is a man, uh, no single individual has been as philanthropic as he has all over the world. There are hospitals, fellowships. Uh, the leader of Hungary, who is a violent opponent of Mr. Soros, went to Oxford on a Soros fellowship. <laughs> I uh, know he that. Is so, so the idea that he's simply giving money for one point of view, no. I mean, he's funded many of his own opponents. Yeah. And few people can say that. So he is not dissimilar the Open Society Foundation. That's not dissimilar from the Ford Foundation, mm-hmm. from the Gates Foundation. It's just a big philanthropic enterprise. And thank God, thank God they're investing in education. Now, does he believe in democracy? Yes. Does he believe in freedom? Yes. Does he believe in the liberty of the individual? In his speech that he announced this, he talked about the um, importance of um, personal accountability of people taking charge of their own beliefs and standing up for them uh, about um, personal autonomy and not being simply controlled either by government or by um, a company, um, a major global company. Mm -hmm. So he is talking about values that the right and libertarians can uh, agree with. And uh, 
So it is simply um, not the case that um, uh, he has uh, any kind of political agenda. He's also not of an age that um, he can um, think except in terms of a legacy. Hmm. When you reach your... The, 89, the, I think. Yeah. He's 89. He's going to be 90. Yeah. You're thinking about your legacy over many generations. He has been arguably the most generous private individual of modern history and unprecedented in that regard. And um, he's right to view the legacy as most promising in education. We don't think of um, John Harvard as creating a political institution, but he did. Mm -hmm. Harvard was designed to propagate a certain attitude to Christianity. So was Yale. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So was Columbia. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it is simply uh, implausible when we look at the great contribution of the Christian-based institutions in the United States, including Notre Dame and Georgetown, uh, where the propagation of the faith, a particular kind of faith, not maybe your neighbor's faith, was part of the mission. Are there values in implicit in the creation of any institution of higher education? The answer is yes. And these values are ones about critical thought, Mm -hmm. freedom, rational debate, evidence, and uh, free society. Yeah, and civility, which would be nice. Absolutely. So so can you call that political? Yes, in a way. uh, uh, But uh, I would call that uh, uh, recognizing the inherent connection between education and democracy. You know, as I mentioned in the open, Leon, you are the musical director, principal conductor at the American Symphony Orchestra and conductor laureate at the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. So let me ask you this. Why do people write and play music, and why do people like me listen to music? So I never intended to be uh, an educator. I always intended to be a musician, which I have been lucky to continue um, doing. So there are people who believe, and I I suspect they may be right, that before language, the human species had music, Mm -hmm. that music precedes language. That's why in the Bible, the person who brings the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel is a stammerer, can't speak. Moses has a speech defect. Mm -hmm. In order to give the signal that language is not the only conveyor of the divine, that the divine in our life uh, has a mode of expression and communication from individual to individual and in one's own inner dialogue that is not necessarily linguistic. And that method of communication is the system of sounds that various cultures have developed as music. So music is the essential core of what makes every individual human. Mm. And therefore, we like it, we dance to it, we sing it, Mm -hmm. we use it to express love, we use it to express faith, Um, we we attach to it meaning uh, because it is built to absorb the attachment of meaning, but it is both intimate and public. It is the ultimately human uh, expression of humanity. Every time I am involved in a performance, I just did a series of concerts, all Beethoven concerts because of the Beethoven anniversary year, 
And um, in the rehearsals and in the concerts, I, I it's the moment I feel most that I am defending what is valuable about being human. Mm-hmm. So it is... Um, it's a reminder of the divine spark in us yeah, and something that every individual shares. Um, and uh, I, I think we like it because it's a very affirmative reflection of who we are. Yeah. In some ways it doesn't have any utility too, which is – I like it because it has no utility. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is – there is. <laughs> you is, see in the magic flute of Mozart there is um, – the magic flute does tame wild animals. Uh, there is a, there is, and that that utility is that it is. Although there is music for military, I mean mm-hmm. there are marches and music has been used to to uh, encourage troops and uh, in old battle scenarios. Um, music uh, has a more of a uh, um, an effect of. Consoling, calming, um, although it has been used for revolutionary and political purposes as well. But uh, I, I, I think that it doesn't have any utility except in the building of community. Yeah, the fabric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a yeah. sense of belonging. That's why it has assumed such a large place in certain religions. You wrote a book, I guess it was about 15 years ago, uh, The Art of Listening. And you basically said that because of the massive changes in technology over the last century or so, um, um, how they've really affected the way we listen to music and what we derive from it. Speak about those changes. Well, I think that uh, the technology has, on the one hand, opened up enormous access, but it has also privatized listening. So... There was a time where um, people thought if you listened in your living room with high-fidelity equipment, that was better than going to a public concert. Mm-hmm. And uh, that the reproduction of humanly made sound seemed to take priority. So it's as if we said, well, we don't have to go to a museum. Let's just buy a book with all the paintings in that museum reproduced. Why do we have to go to the museum? Just looking That's what everybody thought actually yeah, was going to pri- happen. Privacy in our own home. I got it on my computer screen. Right, I got my computer screen. <laughs> right. Why do I have to go see Michelangelo's David? I just get on my computer screen. So um, there have been changes in, 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 in habits of listening as a result of technology. Um, and uh, uh, there has been some erosion um, of active amateurism. Mm-hmm. You know, people use that to play the piano. To have sound in their own home now, they just they used to drop a needle. Now they, you know, put a CD in the in the slot, and now they just turn on their computer or their iPhone or their smartphone. But um, <clears throat> it seems to me that uh, what's what we're experiencing now is a revival of the public human aspect, the ritual aspect of music. People yeah. want to go to a concert. They do. They want to hear people sing. Mm-hmm. They want to see the people in real time in real space. Uh, That's actually become the business model now. I think, yes. And so recording used to be a moneymaker. It isn't anymore, no, certainly anymore, in yeah. classical music. Mm-hmm. And uh, the um, and I'm, I'm greatly encouraged by the um, revival of performance and the number of talented musicians around the world who who look forward to the idea that part of their life will be spent doing this 
as part of their life, making yeah. music. Well, a lot of those talented musicians, or a good number of them, are at Bard. So just give us a word or two about arts at Bard, because it is so pervasive. <laughs> Bard has a long tradition in the arts, and um, in literature and the arts, and uh, we have now a conservatory that Tan Dunn is the dean of. We have a, a, a young professional orchestra called the Orchestra Now, which has been fantastically successful and does concerts in New York and up there and travels. And we have a fantastic conservatory. We're actually doing a a concert production of Zalome uh, this this uh, semester. And then we have a fantastic visual arts yeah. uh, program. We have Summerscape, which um, is a, um, a theater and dance program in the summer and during the year where we do innovative new work, um, the most famous of which is a, a new production of Oklahoma that won a Tony, that went to Broadway ultimately, and uh, a setting with Bryce Marden and Pam Tanowitz, a setting of the Four Quartets, um, of T.S. Eliot, a prize-winning dance production. Uh, so we produce important work in a summer festival. We have a fantastic graduate, undergraduate art-making program in MFA. We have the leading place for the study of how to be a curator mm-hmm. in the Center for Curatorial Studies and also in the Decorative Arts in New York. So we have a very lively visual and um, theatrical and... Um, Live Arts Bard, which is a theatrical program, dance and music, uh, and including this U.S.-China Music Institute, which um, teaches Chinese music um, to Westerners, and we do performances of traditional Chinese music. Fantastic. You know, speaking of the arts and you being a musical conductor, do you think our political leaders could ever learn anything from the art of being a musical conductor? It's funny you should say that there are many, uh, not many, but some conductors uh, who have tried to market their skills to corporations as a as a model for leadership. I've never quite understood how that works, but uh, I, I, I tip my hat to them. Uh, conducting uh, used to be, it's interesting, there are many analogies between conducting and politics. Mm-hmm. So it used to be uh, a, a position of tyranny, of absolute power, the Toscanini generation, where the person on the podium was a tyrant. Sure. And Some of them brought uh, revolvers, didn't they? Rodzinski came to a Arthur Rodzinski came to a famous rehearsal and put a revolver oh, okay, on the podium. Okay, I'll do what he says. <laughs> right. Exactly right. And that has passed. Um, there are a couple left, but it's it's not it's not um, it's not. So now the conductor is um, a persuader. Mm. So you have to um, you have to persuade your colleagues to go along, and you have to. Um, uh, Convince them to follow you. Inspire them. Yes, inspire them. It's still not a good political analogy because politics is made by debate and by often by compromise. And um, uh, making a performance is not by committee. And uh, any more than making an artwork is by committee. Um, And, um, you know, the... um, uh, Mona Lisa or uh, any great painting wasn't done by a committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, that's where the analogy begins to fall uh, fall away. The comparison doesn't work. Yeah, but although I would say great organizations are not done by committee either. 
They listen to everybody, but there usually has to be one vision and one person who makes the decision, yeah. or otherwise you're pretty close to chaos. In, in, in the modern orchestral world, the time to listen to everybody isn't there. So I think we, yeah. sort of, we to some extent, circumvent a little <laughs> bit of that. Let me close with this, Leon. In your opinion, what makes for a great teacher? Uh, two things that work together. One is to inspire in a young person a belief in the value and the importance of what's being taught. So the love of the subject, the love of the question, the love of the chase, the love of the issue, the love of the material, where the personality of the teacher bleeds into a love of the subject matter. That's number one. Mm -hmm. And with that, uh, a sense of respect on the part of of the pupil for the person who's conveying that subject matter or introducing that subject matter, combined, that's one part, combined with the teacher's willingness to transmit to the student the belief in the student's own capacities. The most important thing about a teacher a teaching is that this is a non-parental, non-family member mm-hmm. who communicates to a young person about to come of age as an adult, belief in that person by that person's self. In other words, where it is not, I'm your parent, that's why, or some other reason, not familial, but to inspire self-confidence and courage in the young person. I wouldn't be anything, if I'm anything at all, were it not for my teachers who conveyed to me by paying attention to me, by being empathetic to me, by believing in me, when there was no reason to. Even before you'd done anything. That's right. Yeah. And to that leap of faith combined with the love of subject that um, it gave me the courage to take a risk in life and to try to do something. So a great teacher is a person who deepens a pupil's belief in their possibility in life and uh, does so because the pupil in turn respects the teacher. So it's not simply that the teacher is a nice person, mm-hmm. uh, but the teacher has chosen somehow to pay attention to me, the pupil, and share with me the love of this common enterprise, be it science, be it the arts. Absolutely. Well, Leon Botstein, the president of Bard College, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Now, if there was one book or article, video, or piece of music that you would recommend to listeners, believing that most would really get something from it, what would that be? Well, uh, my instinct would be to commend to the listener to sit down with a long book, in a time of short attention span, to learn the love of living with an imagination uh, that runs over a considerable period of time. So I would recommend Middle March by George Eliot, mm-hmm. War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman, um, and that to immerse oneself in the imaginary world sit down and read uh, The Human Comedy by Balzac, all its various pieces, um, 
contemplation, hmm. repose in our times is hard to come by. So I would, I would, um, I would recommend um, the joy of of reading. Great advice. Well, thanks, Leon. It was a pleasure to have you on the show, and thanks for such an interesting conversation. My pleasure. Thanks, I'll, Denver. I'll be back with more of the business of giving right after this. The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving.